Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 5. You can find that in the Pew Bible on page 993. you're visiting with us this morning, we have been working our way through Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 5, and we're at verse 17. And our focus will be on verses 17 to 23. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, we have two kinds of elders, ruling and teaching. Which kind preaches? Two, why is it important that a church selects godly men to be leaders? Three, what should happen if a church leader is misbehaving? For according to verse 21, who is watching everything that goes on in the church? First Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of God. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing I'm sorry, without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. There ends a reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. We thank you for the glorious things you teach us about yourself and the way that you constantly draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior throughout your scriptures. We also thank you for the instructions that you give to the church of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul that will help us to understand better what you require of your church regarding both leadership and the congregation. And so, Lord, we don't want to skip over these words because they are your word. We humbly ask that you would speak to us this morning. Please send your Holy Spirit in a special way that you would help the preacher and help all of us who will hear this morning to receive from you. 
And we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it is an inevitability that if a preacher is going to preach through books of the Bible that he will have to preach on preaching and preachers and leaders at some point. It's certainly the case in Paul's letters to 1st and 2nd Timothy and then to Titus as well. Should be no surprise to us because Jesus cares about his church. God cares about his church and so those who are influential in the church, the church larger church, but also in the local body, that matters to God. And he gives very specific instructions on how the church is to be ordered. And yet, while a preacher is called to preach on such things, you can imagine that it can be kind of awkward and convicting for the preacher and for the pastor, but it can also be that way for the congregation as well. And so here we go. We're going to hear a sermon about preachers. Keeping in mind always that the importance of this is that it is Christ's church and those who are leaders and specifically preachers in churches need to have Christ always in focus. That's behind all of this. In our passage, Paul is continuing to show Timothy how he's to rule the church, how he's to order the church, oversee this developing church in Ephesus. Uh, to establish the church and maintain good leadership in the church. Now, some of you might be waiting for me to really preach on that one kind of parenthetical verse, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I'm simply going to say that's sort of a sidebar here. I don't think this is a, that's a launching pad for Christian liberty. It's simply Paul caring for the one that he sees as his own son, Timothy, to care for his ailments and to not be afraid to use wine to help him with his stomach ailments. So back to the main thought of the passage, this concern for the way that the church maintains itself, maintains itself. I'm going to change the order a little bit from the way Paul lays it out. I don't think he would take issue with it. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit would take issue with me changing the order a little bit. But I think changing the order helps us to see the priority that Paul is trying to get across here. Paul is trying to get across here. Again, these things are vitally important because leaders in the church and influencers can either do the church good or do the church harm. And so the first thing is that we have to have what's called proactive vetting. But before we even get there, I want to draw attention to verse 21 because I think this kind of sets the atmosphere, sets the atmosphere. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, vetting leadership in a church takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of focus from the humans involved, but we can never forget the intensity of the spiritual presence of God constantly, constantly, that we have heavenly witnesses, that we're being constantly observed by God himself and his angels. You may or may not be aware that you are always being observed in our sound booth. 
We have cameras, four different cameras for security purposes around the church, and, and our church is constantly being watched from our sound booth. Magnify that to the presence of God who sees all things and knows all things and recognize that our lives, but in this context, the church activity of leaders and the congregation are constantly under the scrutiny of God. To put it plainly, plainly, nobody gets away with anything. Paul specifically says that, that it's in the presence of God, God Almighty, who sees all things and who knows all things and who discerns hearts. And then there's Christ the head, the very one who came and died for the church, now at the right hand of God, observing how the church that bears his name is acting. And then the elect angels, those who will judge along with God's people, those who will judge all things, even the angels never forget that spiritual presence that's constantly, constantly with us. That will help leaders to make sure that they maintain utmost integrity, but will also help the church congregation to make sure that they too maintain the utmost integrity. I assume that there are results when God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the angel observe the activities of a church, that there are results. That when they're pleasing in the sight of God, there are blessings. When there are problems, it's the reverse. I couldn't help but think of Revelation where we read about the seven churches, and here I just want to refer us to one example, and it is the church of Ephesus. And if you go through the seven churches, you'll see that God is constantly observing his church and either blessing them or disciplining them and sometimes severely punishing them for the way that they behave. This is Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And you look at the different churches, and you recognize there that God is constantly observing the church. And that might seem very obvious to every one of us, but it's something that we need to keep in mind. And I think that's where we need to start our understanding of what Paul continues to say. How it works, I don't exactly know. I would venture to say that it's not always discernible, the impact that, that the presence of God has on a church. 
It may not be by tremendous growth. In fact, some very faithful churches, some very loving churches end up shrinking. It may not be health in the church, and it may not be wealth in the church. But we have to understand that when God is pleased with the way a congregation is operating, that there's going to be blessings on that church. Blessings of harmony and unity. A real sense, a real sense of the presence of God, his favorable presence. A real sense of the love of Jesus Christ among the people of God. Those are things that glorify God. And if nothing else, if God is glorified in the body of Christ, something glorious has been achieved. Conversely, if a church isn't following what God commands for his church, there's undoubtedly going to be increased tension, strife, spiritual lethargy, malaise, and all kinds of things like that. And so God could very well lift his spirit from a church. It's an unhealthy church, and it can become a bad witness. And so there's a lot to understand behind the way a church acts. Well, God, through Scripture, tells us that he has holy standards for his church, and he's got special standards for those who are leaders in the church, what leaders are supposed to be, and how the congregation is to behave towards the leaders. And so we're to reflect those holy standards. Holy standards aren't going to be reflected in some air of false piety. It's going to be reflected in the genuine service to God and genuine love for one another in the church. The holy standards have to be upheld. It's not about facades. It's not about titles. It's not about putting leaders on pedestals. It's about, it's about faithfulness and it's about genuineness. There are holy standards for the calling of leaders. And it's never to be a popularity contest. It has to be according to scripture. I won't recount the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church. We've done that already in 1 Timothy. It's got to be done according to God's word, and those standards have to be upheld. But churches need to choose very wisely who they pick as their leaders. My wife likes to say when somebody's thinking about getting married, choose wisely. For a church, I would say choose wisely and choose biblically. And so there are standards for the calling of leaders and there's standards for the conduct of the congregation. I want to focus on the leaders for a little bit because there needs to be this hearty examination of leaders for the church. And, and I'm afraid that for much of the church, especially in the United States, we can have things backwards. And having things backwards can be a real problem. So I'll, I'll list the things backwards first, and then I'll list the things that need to be in place in order for the criterion for good leadership in a church. Backwards would be this, that first of all, we look for talent. We look for somebody who can articulate things beautifully and, 
and who can manage all kinds of things, who have this big personality and are engaging and winsome and all these kinds of things. Larger-than-life characters can be the first thing that we look for in leaders, especially in preachers. They can dance, they can juggle. That's what very often is looked at first. Second to that comes their knowledge. Do they have a knowledge of the Bible? Third can come soundness. So often soundness of doctrine is thrown out the window for something much less. Then they might finally get to character. And then they might finally get to their main concerns. What's the main concern of a leader? And then finally they might ask, are they genuinely converted? Church has fallen into that one before. One of our Presbyterian forefathers preached a sermon called The Danger of an Unconverted Minister because he was gravely concerned with what unbelievers in the pulpit would project to their congregations. And so I offer this order that first of all, anyone, anyone in leadership, an elder, and the pastors that we call need to be genuinely converted. Genuinely understand that sinners are saved by grace alone through Jesus Christ. And that they've submitted their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And coming from that comes the next thing is concern. What is the pastor's concern? Is the pastor's concern, first and foremost, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That when a preacher is in the pulpit, that he's saying, Lord, put Jesus in front of the people. And second to that is a concern for the souls of the people. Not to put himself first. Not to neglect the souls of the people. The preeminence of Christ and the souls of the people. And then character. Someone above reproach. I don't need to elaborate on that. I think we understand what that means, but he's not, he's not to be accused of any improprieties, any lifestyle that would bring shame to the name of Jesus, the very name he preaches. They all hang together. I would never put soundness in the background. But a preacher has to not only understand his Bible, be biblically informed, but he has to be doctrinally sound. And then, have some degree, some degree of talent or giftedness. Especially preachers need to be able to convey the faith clearly and accurately. I would just put it this way, a good sermon doesn't leave people confused. I was once told of, I don't know if it was a Dutch church or a Scottish church, old school church, and... Two women were coming out of the congregation, and the one woman said to another, that was an amazing sermon. 
that was a beautiful, lofty sermon. And the other woman said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't understand a word that the pastor said. And the old godly woman, Calvinist woman said, that's what I mean. It was so lofty and so powerful. But a preacher and a teacher needs to be clear. Well, there's a process to undergo, and there's a process that goes through what we call our presbytery. The board of elders represented by our state will examine a man on those things. And I think that very often we woefully fall short on the most important things. We fall short on issues of concern and character. We focus, and maybe rightly on that level, on Bible knowledge and on doctrine and on all those other areas, but sometimes there's big gaps where character is concerned. I guess maybe that's where a local congregation needs to concern itself very closely with a character of a man that they're going to put over leadership, whether it's an elder or a preacher. But let me again come back to preachers. I think there need to be some very frank interviews. Talking to wives talking to children of the pastor, talking to their neighbors. There's been a number of occasions where someone needed security clearance for the government and people would show up on our door and ask questions. And they would say, your neighbor over here is up for security clearance. Is there anything incriminating in their behavior, anything that you've observed that might get them in trouble, any way they could be blackmailed or anything like that. They'd ask the questions. I'm not suggesting that we have the FBI show up at our doors of our pastors, but I think we do need to ask those hard questions. Are there red flags? I have seen churches that have called pastors where if they had gone back to their former church, they would have seen red flags all over the place, but they never checked with those churches. And they found themselves in the same terrible situation as that former church had. Well, that's this idea of vetting to make sure that we have good elders. Again, good ruling elders. Ruling elders are called to oversee the church, to be under shepherds, under Christ, spiritual care of the church, oversee worship, oversee the fact that people should be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. But then there's teaching elders who do all those things but are especially called to preach the word and to teach. The primary function is twofold, to declare the word and to shepherd the flock. Now, they may do many other things, they probably do, but all those things you might say are fringe benefits of the church. As I mentioned last time, I'm sometimes surprised at all the things that a church can add to a pastor, but I'm also sometimes surprised at how little some churches put on their pastors, and we have to strike a balance. But there are two things here that Paul points out. First of all, they are to be honored doubly honored. First of all, to be dignified, and that means that they're men of dignity. 
that they actually deserve honor and proper decorum to be respected by everyone in the congregation and they respect everyone in the congregation. And again, this isn't about heirs. This isn't about stacking up titles. This is not about putting a pastor on a pedestal. Titles might have their places, but they're not to be the basis of our esteem for people. Let character speak. Let conduct speak. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we asked you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. There's a sermon that I have never preached here and that I will never preach here. And very rarely do I get to preach in other churches, but when I preach in other churches, I have preached a sermon entitled The Proper Care and Maintenance of Your Pastor. And I feel in other churches that I can very boldly preach about how they should care for their pastors. And I feel very well cared for here, but it's never a sermon I would preach in my own church. But I will say that pastors are to be respected by their congregation, but it has to be mutual. So that kind of honor. But then Paul talks about, which is very awkward for a preacher to talk about, the issue of money, the issue of compensation. It's right there in your Bible. In fact, Paul quotes Moses and Jesus when he speaks about compensation for pastors. Again, a very awkward issue. It's not about stacking up money, but it's for providing for pastors as best as we can. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the fact that that should happen, but that he himself doesn't take wages. And I can say that most pastors that I know, if we could do it, would do it for free. It's just not practical. But they're to be paid, whether they're full-time or part-time, they should be provided for. You might ask, well, what do pastors do to deserve to get paid? I guess the ongoing joke is they only work on Sunday. And if they only have one service, they work for one hour Sunday morning. If they have two, they work a whopping two hours a week on Sunday. I actually heard someone ask the question, what do pastors do when it comes to sermons? I could throw together a message in one hour. Pastors need to have a good work ethic. Pastors need to have that balance in life. Pastors are humans, believe it or not. There are pastors who can become workaholics. And there are pastors that can become slouches. And so there has to be this accountability of the pastor in the church with a good work ethic. With reasonable expectations. Our, the, our denomination has come a long way, by the way. In fact, in most charges to pastors, there's a line in there about keeping the pastor free from worldly care, meaning financial. Now, that's a relative thing for sure. 
hardly seems fair when most people in the congregation don't have that luxury. So I totally get it, but it's usually built into the call package. My 34 years of ministry. Some have been offended by my salary. I've had a man come right up in my face, pointing his finger and yelling at me because of my salary. On the flip side, and that was because in their estimation it was way too high. On the flip side, there have been those who are offended because of what my salary wasn't. This isn't about me. This is about Paul simply saying that a workman should be worthy of his wages. Better, Jesus saying a workman should be worthy of his wages. Don't make the ox work without paying him. Maybe I should apologize for my title, Grade A Approved Livestock, to talk about pastors that way. Sort of like an ethnic joke. Jokes are always more appropriate and even funnier when an ethnicity tells a joke about themselves or when an occupation tells a joke about themselves. The best lawyers have the best lawyer jokes. In this case, I feel at liberty to say sometimes we should be seen as those, those livestocks that are working and being fed. Well, I thought it might come to this this morning. And as sometimes happens, it may be problematic when I start talking about the ministry and preaching and teaching and leaders and the dynamic between a congregation and the leaders. I have way too much to say. And so I'm going to leave off this morning because we have to deal with some other issues regarding the ministry. And so, Lord willing, you'll bear with me and come back next week and we'll examine some of this together in the rest of the passage. But for this morning, I just want to encourage our congregation to remember that we are here because we're God's church. And we are here to glorify Jesus Christ. And if there's anything in the pulpit or in the leadership that diminishes that, we need to repent and get it right. And if there's any behavior in the church that diminishes that or clouds that glorifying Jesus Christ, we need to repent and get things right. Remembering that we're in the presence of a holy God and Jesus Christ, whose name we bear as individual Christians and as a church, and as God's elect angels, who in some amazing, mysterious way, nothing escapes their eyes either. May God grant us the church to be the church, grant us the grace to be the church that he calls us to be. Let's pray. Merciful and mighty God, you are so good to us. We never want to overlook the fact that one of the great gifts that you've given is your holy church. And that you've established the church on the face of this earth to glorify you and to exalt the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for our church that we would be that church. 
that we would first pursue all the things that you've called us to do that bring you glory. Those wonderful means of grace that you've privileged us to be responsible for. We pray for our leaders that they would have all the grace that they need to lead. We pray that you would always guard this pulpit according to all the things that you command in Scripture for those who would dare to preach and teach your word. We pray for a great spirit of harmony and unity among the body of Christ here. We thank you that we do experience that, and we know that that's a work of your grace. That's evidence that your Holy Spirit truly is at work in this body. How are we not amazed by that sometimes? You're so good and so gracious to this body of Christ. But Lord, we also recognize that we are sinners and that we need your help in every aspect of leadership, in every aspect of being congregants. And so help us, we pray. Show us where we need to repent. Help us to humbly bow before you and seek your grace, both of forgiveness where we've sinned and a renewed zeal and vigilance in pursuing the things that you've called your church to pursue. Lord, we can't help but think that to attain those things, we need, we need a real sense of harmony and love, clear presence of your Holy Spirit right here to glorify Jesus and to bring pleasure to you, our great God. And we come to you in the name of our glorious Savior and head of the church, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. One of the great blessings, the means of grace that God has given to his church is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we have the privilege of celebrating that together this morning. Uh, this table is for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and who have made that profession of faith in Christ public, have been examined by the elders in this church, if you are a member of this church. Uh, for those of you who might be visiting, we do require that you are in good standing in a Bible-preaching church, that uh, you are here with us as visitors. We welcome you to the table if you can truly claim Christ as your Savior, and that if you're in good standing in a true believing church. For those of you who may not have trusted in Christ as your Savior, we ask that you would refrain from the table, that you would take this time to examine your hearts uh, as you consider your relationship with God, your knowledge and trust or not of the Lord Jesus Christ, and spend time praying and thinking about these things and asking God to show him uh, where, where you need to be reconciled to him. And so we'll take a little time to pray silently together, and then I will read what Paul has to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the Lord's Supper, and then I'll ask the elders to come forward. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that we can come before your throne of grace with our prayers. Lord, truly you do know our hearts. You know the depths of our being. You know our deepest motives. And Lord, we thank you so much that by your mercy that you have touched us so deeply by your grace, by the minister of your spirit, that you've applied the merits of our righteous Lord Jesus Christ to our lives. We recognize that in and of ourselves we're not worthy of salvation, nor in and of ourselves would would we be worthy to participate in this holy sacrament. But Lord, we know that in Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of sins. And so when we come to this table, we're fully aware, or we should be fully aware, of our nature outside of grace, our need for a Savior. But we're so intensely aware that the Savior has come, given his body and his blood for our sake, and dwells right here among us through the Holy Spirit, so that we can truly partake of Christ in a spiritual way. Lord, we ask that you would minister to us through this table as we recognize the need for, but also the actual forgiveness of sins. Lord, we come to this table with joy because we know those things are true. We ask now that you would feed us with your grace as we participate in this table. Minister to us, we pray, as we come to you in Jesus' name.